Nope, you're in the right place. This is the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So on this episode, we're going to do something just a little bit different. It's going to be just you and me. As I have done this podcast and you have listened and interacted with me, I feel like we've come to know each other. Quite frankly, it's something I hadn't counted on, but I'm glad that it happened. So I want to tell you a little bit more about me and my family. We love Christmas. Christmas around our house, it's a big, big deal. Don't get me wrong, we love the food and the lights and the presents. But more than that, however, we love the meaning and feeling of Christmas. People's hearts seem to be just a little bit more open to their fellow man and to God. For me, Christmas has an even deeper meaning. It's a connection back to my earthly father. See, he left me a legacy during Christmas. It's one I've tried to live up to. That legacy has become a tradition. This legacy and tradition will be evident by the end of the story. First, let me say that this story is based on a true event that happened when I was 8 years old. I saw it, or at least I saw part of it as an 8-year-old boy, then explained to me in depth at the age of 16. I had to fill in the gaps of people and events so the story can be told in a way that would engage the listener. I have also changed the names of some of the characters to protect their privacy. Now, the event near the end of the story that I witnessed as an 8-year-old boy did happen. At the end of this story, I will tell you exactly what happened in real life and how I actually came to know about it so that you, the listener, can know exactly what happened. So think of it more like a Christmas parable based on a true event. I feel like the story now needs to be told in a very public way for some reason that I can't explain. Now, one of the things I have come to love about this experience is that it's not an exclusively fundamentalist story. Heck, it's not even an exclusively Mormon type of story. So this experience and this episode can be shared with anybody. But before we begin, I want to tell you, the listener, how very grateful I am that you have spent many hours with me here on the podcast. I have been so blessed to do this podcast and have been even more blessed by you listening and on occasion even interacting with you. I want to thank my guests. They really did make the podcast this year. My hope is is that this story will help you feel the true meaning of Christmas and perhaps make the season a little more bright. I grew up in a pretty normal home. My dad owned his own business. By the time he met my mom, he was already a diesel mechanic working on big 18-wheelers. My mom would help out with the books and that sort of stuff around the office. As a young boy, I'd go with my dad to the shop and work a little and play even more and eat junk and truck stop food. More than that, though, I got to spend time with my dad. I got to learn at his knee. I got to learn life lessons that I use to this day. Looking back, I've often wondered if he didn't have an idea that he would die young somehow. He taught me a lot of things that didn't seem age-appropriate for a 10-12 to year old. Things like how to treat a woman when I was dating, things on how to be a parent and other such stuff. He was my best friend, my gentle protector, my advocate, and my hero. Unlike so many other young men who seem to have a strained relationship with their father, I was blessed with a great relationship with my dad. We lived in an average house in rural western Idaho. Now, I never really got to know my grandparents on either my mom or dad's side. However, I did have something just as good. We had some sweet elderly neighbors, Donna and Charles. They treated me and my three siblings like we were their own grandchildren. They showered us with love and affection. Donna would always be waiting for us every day after school with some sort of confection she'd bake during the day. 
Charles, who had an amazing selection of sodas in his garage, would always signal me over for a Coke and a story from when he was young. I look back now and I wish I could tell my younger self just how good he really had it. That ideal life would come to an abrupt and sudden halt one day in the very last part of December 1991. I awoke that night uh, to see my father slumped over in a chair with paramedics working around him vigorously as Donna consoled my mother and Charles held us kids close. Finally, the paramedics loaded my father in the back of an ambulance and took him to the hospital. Charles stayed in our house all night with me and my three younger siblings, so my mom and Donna could follow the ambulance to the hospital. In the morning, I talked to my mom on the phone. She told me my dad had had a heart attack. After some evaluation, he was moved to a major hospital in Boise where he would undergo a heart bypass surgery. Now today, those surgeries are pretty regular, but in 1991, we didn't have nearly the tech we have today, so it was still a pretty big deal. That day, Charles drove us kids up to the hospital so we could see our dad before he went in for surgery. I remember I was the last one called in to talk to my father that night. As I walked in, my perception of my dad was being shattered as I saw him lying there with tubes and wires hooked up everywhere. He called me over to him. As I went over, he grabbed my hand and spoke to me, expressed how much he loved me. He told me how proud he was of me and that he was sure I would grow up to be a good husband and father. The thing that stuck with me the most, however, was that he told me first I would need to take care of my mom and younger siblings. Then he said, remember, all good things come from God. Now this caught me a little off guard. My dad and my mom weren't particularly religious, and by particularly, I mean at all. However, he always said that he believed in God and Christ. It wouldn't be until I was much older that I realized that that man led more of a grounded life in Christ than many professed religious people. He then kissed me and told me he loved me and to go home and help take care of my younger siblings. The next day I waited at Donna and Charles' house with my younger siblings in anticipation for news on my dad. Charles kept me entertained with stories, Coca-Cola, and cookies while Donna and my mom were at the hospital during my dad's surgery. Finally the call came. As I talked with my mom on the phone, she said that the surgery had went very well and was successful. She said my dad would be fine. I asked when I could see him next. She told me not for a couple of days. All of that night, all of us rejoiced in that house, with Charles saying, This calls for more Coca-Cola and cookies. I went to school that day relieved. My hero, my best friend, was going to be okay. I felt like I was on clouds all day long. I remember what my dad said before the surgery. All good things come from God. For the first time in my young life, I thanked a God I didn't really know for saving my dad. After school, I raced home. I opened the door to my house. I was always first one, the first one home before my siblings. As I burst in the door, I saw a note on the kitchen table. It was my, in my mom's handwriting that read, Went up to be with your dad. I will be home later. Charles will feed you dinner. I waited for my siblings to get home, and then we all went next door to Donna and Charles' house. Charles was there waiting with the obligatory Coke, Cola, and cookies, and everything seemed fine. We played outside. I listened to Charles tell me stories of his childhood and his time in the Army during World War II. Then at about 6 o'clock, Charles ordered pizza. At about 9 o'clock, he took a phone call in a different room, then came out and said, Why don't you kids just grab some pillows and blankets and camp out here on the floor and I'll put a movie on for you. Me and my siblings fell asleep watching the movie McClintock with John Wayne. 
Finally, however, at about 2.30 in the morning, I was awakened by the voice of my mother. As I woke, I looked up, and she had tears in her eyes, and so did Donna, so did Charles. And there was two other men there that I didn't know who I later found out were pastors from a church that Donna and Charles attended. My mom looked at us and said, Kids, your dad has been sick for a while now, and he's not sick anymore. I knew, even at that young age of 13, that my dad had died. In that moment, my life would forever be different and incomplete. For the first time in my young life, I understood death's sting. The next week was a blur as preparations were made for my dad's funeral. I tried to fulfill my father's last charge to me to take my mom and take care of my mom and my younger siblings. My first cognizant memory of that week was the moment I woke up on the day of my dad's funeral. I woke up to the sound of rain on the roof of the house. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to bury my dad. I wasn't ready to shoulder a life without him. However, I knew I had a duty to fulfill to my dad. I had to be a man. I had even requested to be a pallbearer. I figured he carried me the first 13 years of my life. The least I could do was carry him this one last time. I walked into the church house after a private meeting with the pastor of the church and my family and Donna and Charles. As I entered the chapel, I was astounded at how few people were there. My dad was a good man, but he was a very private man. I must admit, I don't remember anything the pastor said. I just remember feeling empty and focused on my duty to be a pallbearer and not screwing up. Finally, the service concluded. I did my duty both in the chapel and to the hearst, and from the hearst to the graveside. After the graveside service, we returned back to the church. I recognized almost everybody at the funeral except for one family. There was a well-dressed man and a woman with two kids that I didn't recognize. I asked my mom who they were. She just said to go introduce myself to them. I approached them. I remember what my dad had taught me about meeting people. You square your shoulders, extend your hand, and look a man in the eyes and give him a firm handshake. I walked up and said, Hi, my name is Dave. In response, he said, I know what your name is, son. Then I asked, How did you know my dad? He responded, Your dad will always hold a special place in my heart. But now may not be the time to go into that. Just know he was a good man. That was enough for me right then. Three years went by as we tried to find a new rhythm as a family. But I was broken. I was broken because I lost my best friend and mentor. We went from being in a middle-income family to being very poor. As I searched for answers, I found none. I tried to be a father figure to my siblings, but I felt like I was failing as I saw each one of them fall into self-destructive habits. But really, who was I to talk because I was doing the very same thing? My mom was working three jobs just to make ends meet. We lost our house and ended up having to move into a trailer court. Everything came to a head when I was 16 years old. I started to get facial hair, but it wasn't that prepubescent facial hair that looked more scuzzy than mature. So for the first time in my life, I needed to shave. One day after school, I stopped by Jerry's Market in the little town of Payette, Idaho, where I lived, and I bought some razors and some shaving cream. The next morning was Saturday. I woke up determined to shave like a man. I applied the shaving cream and tried to shave. I remember thinking, I wish my dad was here just to teach me how to do this. I could have called Charles. He would have come over in a heartbeat to show me how to do it, but I needed to be a man. I needed to 
know how to do this and figure it out myself. I cut myself, not once, not twice, but many, many times. Each time, my anger growing hotter and hotter. Mad at my dad for not being there. Mad at God for taking him away. Mad at the whole damn world. My mom woke up and walked by the bathroom to see me in a bloody shaving cream sort of mess. I must have looked funny. I now even laugh when I think about what I must have looked like. However, at 16 and mad at the whole world, I was not in a laughing mood. My mom saw me and kind of laughed and said, let me help you with this. Her laughter pushed a button in me that caused my blood to boil over. I punched the mirror and screamed at her. What the hell is so funny? I don't have anyone to teach me. I don't have my dad. I don't have anybody. I'm alone trying to figure this out. I don't know who I am because my dad isn't here to tell me. And I don't know who he was. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I stood there, blood dripping from my knuckles, looking at the horrified look on my mom's face. I wiped the shaving cream and blood off my face and stormed out of the house, and I am ashamed to admit that for the next 10 to 12 hours, it was filled with nothing but self-loathing, an endless stream of booze and debauchery as I tried to fill the emptiness inside of me. Finally, about 2 in the morning, I knew I had to go home. When I got home, everyone was asleep, which was just fine with me. I went to sleep hating myself, God, and the whole world. The next weeks went by uneventfully. I didn't say more than two words to my mom. I got myself and my siblings up to school. I went off to school, to football practice, and then to work. Finally, one night, after a game, I went home to find a note on my kitchen table. It just read, you have an appointment tomorrow at 4 p.m. And I thought, oh, crap. She's sending me to a shrink. That is the last thing I needed. I went to sleep thinking about it. And when I woke up the next morning, my mom had already gone to work. So at about 3 o'clock, I got ready to go to this appointment. Now, 3.30 came and went, and I kind of felt some relief because I was like, my mom, she's, she forgot about this, so I don't have to go, and I breathed easy. However, about 4 o'clock, there was a knock at the door. I answered it, and at the door was a man I vaguely recognized. Then in an instant, it came back to me. This was the man that was at the, my dad's funeral that I didn't recognize. He simply said, Hi, David. My name is Sam. We met at your dad's funeral. Are you ready to go? Let's go have some dinner. The ride to the restaurant was completely uncomfortable and silent. There was something to be thankful for, however, in that Sam wasn't a shrink. Now, when we got to the restaurant in Boise, I was surprised. This is a restaurant I'd heard about but never been to because, quite frankly, our social status would have prohibited us from ever going into someplace quite as fancy as that. As I stepped into the restaurant, for the first time, I felt just how poor me and my family really were. I was dressed appropriately enough for the occasion, but I still felt like an imposter. Sam and I were seated at our table, and Sam encouraged me to order whatever I liked. As we sat, Sam and I looked over the menu. A wave of guilt swept over me as I saw the prices of the various meals on the menu. Sam must have picked up on that feeling because once again he assured me that I was fine to order anything I wanted. After we ordered, Sam sat back and began to speak directly to me. Look, David, you're not stupid. You know I'm here because your mom called in a favor. I responded, yeah, and what's that? And he looked me in the eye. But yet he had this faraway look like he was recalling something from a lifetime ago. 
I'm going to tell you tonight how I met your father. With that, Sam began to tell me a story, and that story, little did I know, would come to change and alter the course of my life forever. Sam began his story by telling me a little bit about himself. He said, I was raised in a pretty affluent family. I lived just outside Albuquerque, New Mexico. I decided to attend college in Lincoln, Nebraska. While in my sophomore year, I met my wife, Rachel. We dated for six months, and I knew she was the woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. We married just a year later, and then in April of 1995, we had our first child, a little boy we named Jackson, but we called him Jack around the house. The story I'm about to tell you, David, begins in mid-December 1985. I was in my senior year of college. Now, when I wasn't in class, I worked part-time for the university as a janitor. Rachel worked as a waitress in a local cafe close to campus. We lived in a duplex. Our side had two bedrooms. We managed to get by with a lot of hard work and a little help from our parents. We were poor, but we were happy. As I came home from my last class before Christmas break, I was super excited for the holiday. This would be the first Christmas our little family would be together alone. My parents had decided to go on a cruise over the holidays since my parents were now empty nesters. Rachel's parents were going on a mission trip over the holidays to Mexico with their local Baptist church. The thought of being together, just the three of us, over the holidays generated a lot of anticipation for both me and Rachel. We felt like we were at the beginning of our own family traditions, and I got home that night and Rachel had started to unwind for the night. We sat on the couch together and just talked. Not rushed because of school or work and just enjoyed our time and talked about what we wanted to do over the Christmas break. We laid Jack down for the night and then we went to bed. As Rachel drifted off to sleep in my arms, I dozed off to thoughts of our first Christmas alone together as a family. At about 2.30 in the morning, however, I awoke to the smoke detectors going off in our duplex. Rachel and I both jumped out of bed to see and smell smoke. It became very apparent very quickly that this was not a bad battery in the smoke detector. As I got out of bed, I placed my hand on the common wall next to where our neighbors lived in our duplex to steady myself. The wall flexed and was extremely hot. My heart sank instantly to my stomach. Rachel went around the house to gather up as much as she could while I grabbed Jack, my wallet, and the keys to my 1977 Ford Pinto. This seemed to take forever, but in actuality, the whole time in the duplex was probably 45 seconds to a minute tops. We ran out the door at the same time our neighbors ran down the walk, and we all turned around to see the flames shoot out the windows on both sides of the duplex. I held Rachel and Jack close as we watched the flames engulf our duplex. We got into the Pinto, and I turned it on and moved it about a thousand feet down the road. I told Rachel to wait in the car with Jack where it was warm. I would run down to the duplex to meet the firemen. By the time the fire truck got there, the duplex was completely engulfed in flames. It was a total loss. I stood around for a few more minutes to answer questions about the duplex and to inform the firemen that everyone got out safely. About an hour after that, the final flames had been extinguished and nothing really remained. It was now about 5 a.m. in the morning by the time I got back into the Pinto with Rachel and Jack. I told Rachel that the duplex was a complete loss. We sat there for a few minutes in complete shock, contemplating what had just happened. Rachel finally broke the silence. 
Sam, what are we going to do? I thought for a long moment as I formulated a plan. I had in my wallet about $100 in cash. I also had a credit card my dad had given me with, with a $300 limit. Rachel had another 100 in her purse. Our address book was lost in the fire, so we had no way of getting a into contact with any of the family. And with our parents unreachable, we made the decision to drive to my parents' house in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We found a McDonald's, and after I'd picked up an Atlas, we planned our drive out. It was about a 14-hour drive, but if we were careful with our money, and if we only stopped for one night, we should have been able to get there within two days with no issues. The only really concern I had was that my little Pinto had been acting kind of funny over the last few weeks. However, it didn't seem like it was anything too bad. So I felt like it should be a drive that the Pinto could make no problem. Rachel, ever the practical one, pointed out that we had one immediate issue that needed to be remedied. We were still in our pajamas and didn't have any more clothes. We decided we would stay the night in a hotel there so we could get some rest, shower, and buy new clothes for, our, for all of us on the trip. And then we would drive straight through the next day. We got our room, showered, and bathed Jack, and then the three of us fell asleep together on the bed in the little hotel room. As Rachel and Jack drifted off to sleep, I listened to them sleep and offered a prayer of gratitude to God that he had preserved the life of my family. We woke up the next morning in relatively good spirits. We felt like we had a plan and we thought we had enough resources. We got up and dressed, we fueled up the Pinto, grabbed a few snacks and hit the road. We were about two hours into our drive when Jack began to get really fussy. At first we chalked it up to him just being sick of the car. But soon fussiness gave way to full-fledged screams of infant discomfort and pain. Rachel turned around to soothe Jack and said, Sam, Jack is burning up. I passed a sign that said we were only about 30 miles away from the town of Kearney, Nebraska. Rachel and I talked for a moment and made the decision to find a quick care and get Jack looked at. We pulled off I-80 and found one. I was figuring that this would put us a little behind, but not much. It was about noon, and it was called an urgent care, so it was assumed that it would be quick, right? Well, to my surprise, when we walked into the place, it was packed. What I thought would take two hours tops turned into an eight-hour ordeal. By the time the doctor had examined Jack, it was 6.30 p.m. By the time we were checking out of the quick care, it was 7.30 p.m. Jack was diagnosed with a double ear infection. The bill for the doctor's visit was 150 bucks. We then went to the local drugstore to purchase the antibiotics, and that cost an additional $50. I did the math in my head. We'd already spent 250 of our 500. By the time we were done at the pharmacy, it was 9.30 p.m. As we got back into the car, it was now starting to snow. I checked an AM station in the Pinto, and parts of I-80 had been shut down due to a fast-moving snowstorm coming out of Colorado. Rachel and I looked at our finances. We had 250 to get us to Albuquerque. We needed about 100 of that for gas and figured if we were frugal, we would have enough food as well. Since it was so late and I-80 was closed in spots, we decided to get a room at Motel 6 for $35, then get up in the morning and make the 12-hour drive to Albuquerque. The next morning there was fresh snow, but I-80 westbound was open to us, and we were back on the road. We all jumped in the pinnacle, fueled up, grabbed some food for the trip, and started heading west again. 
The plan was we would drive west on I-80 until we got to Big Springs, Nebraska. From there, we would take I-76 around Denver, then pick up I-25 and go all the way into Albuquerque. Things were starting to look up. I could tell Jack was feeling better as he slept in his car seat. I took comfort in the rhythm of Rachel's breath as she slept. I was just coming through Brick Springs, Nebraska when I started to smell something funny coming from the Pinto. Then I noticed my temperature gauge was rising. I pulled off the exit and pulled into an old gas station that had a repair shop in it. As I pulled in and shut the car off, I could see steam pouring out from under the hood of the Pinto. I popped the hood and saw antifreeze everywhere. The mechanic from the shop came over and asked if he could take a look. He quickly diagnosed the problem as a malfunctioning thermostat. I really didn't have the money to pay a mechanic and I told him that. He said that he could show me how to replace it and would even let me borrow some tools. Super grateful for his willingness to work with me, I asked him if I could buy the thermostat from him. He informed me that he didn't have one. I checked the local parts store and the best they could do was get us one first thing in the morning. The part itself wasn't very expensive, but this meant that I would have to put out the money for one more night in a hotel. The thought of this made my gut turn. I found us the cheapest room I could, which was thankfully just across the street from the gas station. After paying for the room and the thermostat, we were down to $75. I could possibly overextend the credit card if we needed, but we should be able to make it with fuel if we drove all the following day to Albuquerque. The next morning came and at 9am the thermostat arrived. Thanks to the mechanics instructions and the tools we were back on the road by 12pm. We were about 10 hours from Albuquerque. I felt like the worst was behind us. As we got to the very outskirts of Denver however, things took a disastrous turn. The Pinto began to shake tremendously and lose speed. The more I put my foot into the gas, the louder the RPMs would climb and yet we still lost speed. I looked ahead and an off-ramp had a 76 truck stop on it that was only a quarter mile ahead. I put my hazard lights on and coasted off the interstate. We parked the car, turned it off, and then turned it back on. The car had no trouble starting back up, but we couldn't get the car to get back into gear. I had Rachel steer while I pushed the car around to the mechanic shop side of the truck stop. A man came out to greet me and we finished pushing the car into the shop. Me, Rachel, and Jack sat in the lobby of the shop. Finally, the mechanic came in to talk to us. He informed us that the transmission was completely gone out of the pinno. It would take a week to fix it and cost thousands. I asked if there was an inexpensive workaround. He said he didn't know of one, but that he would talk to the shop foreman when he got in. Now, the shop foreman normally came in about 6 o'clock in the evening just to check on everybody before shutting it down for the night. Rachel and I took Jack to the diner that all truck stops seems to have and went in. I literally had $50 left to my name. I told Rachel to order dinner for her. I sat in that booth not knowing what to do. A waitress whose name tag read Sheila came up and took Rachel's order. I just ordered a black coffee. Sheila was a short stout woman whose voice sounded like she'd spent a lifetime smoking Paul Malls, but was a warm woman nonetheless who called everybody honey. While Sheila was putting in the order and getting my coffee, Rachel and I began to talk about what we were going to do. I noticed that in addition to being a truck stop, this was also a pickup and drop off point for Greyhound bus lines. I left Rachel and Jack there in the booth where we were seated, then went to the ticketing counter of the bus depot. I asked how much for three to get to Albuquerque. 
The ticketing agent told me that they had a bus leaving for Albuquerque in about three hours and that there was room, and another bus was leaving the next day at the same time. The fare, however, would be $200. My heart sank. It might as well be a million. I went back to the booth to talk to Rachel. I told Rachel where things were at. She looked at me with tears in her eyes and asked me what we were going to do. I told her, sweetheart, we are out of options. I'm going to have to make a sign and beg for money until we get enough to get bus tickets, hopefully by the time the bus leaves tomorrow. In the meantime, I would talk to Sheila and ask that as long as Rachel kept ordering coffee, if she and Jack could stay in the restaurant while I begged. Rachel and I wept silently with each other in that little booth. Sheila came back to the booth to deliver Rachel's food and my coffee. I pulled Sheila off to the side and explained the whole situation. Sheila's eyes welled up with tears and said, Of course Rachel and Jack could stay in the diner. It's open 24 hours a day. I then asked if Sheila had a piece of cardboard and a marker. She delivered the supplies and I went to the men's room stall and started writing my sign asking for money. As I wrote the sign, I wept knowing that it had failed my little family. Just three days ago, all I could think about was being curled up and cozy with them in our little duplex, and now was in a truck stop men's room writing a sign begging for money. I hid the sign in my jacket pocket, then went back to the booth and apologized to Rachel for my failings as a husband and father and provider. I looked outside and it had started to snow. I sat with Rachel, sipping coffee and holding my son, putting off the inevitable. I tried several times to get up and go, but Sheila would come back around with coffee and said I would need it because it was going to be cold outside. Then she came back around with the previous day's pecan pie and said it was on the house. About another hour passed now and it was snowing sideways. It was a kind of blizzard that could only be produced in the Rockies. There was no more time to stall. I checked to make sure that the sign was still on my coat. I could feel it. The instrument of my humiliation and my acknowledgement of failure. I kissed my son, then kissed Rachel and apologized again. She in return simply touched my cheek while crying and told me that she would always be proud of me and would always love me. I then got up and thanked Sheila for allowing my family to be here in the shelter of the diner. She looked at me with tears in her eyes and hugged me. I then pushed past the door and headed outside to do what I had to do. I walked to a place that I felt was safe, yet visible. I reached into my coat and began to pull out the sign and got ready to start begging for money. Then, out of the blizzard, I heard a loud, echoing voice that was strong yet pleasant. I turned around and through the blizzard I saw a large man approaching me, calling out my name. He was about 300 feet away, but I could already tell this man was large. Standing six foot two, tall and broad-shouldered, dressed head to toe in a Santa Claus suit. He said my name again as he got within about 10 feet of me, and then said, Sam, what are you doing out here? I answered back, and as I did, I began to cry again at the thought of having to vocally admit my failure. I don't have a choice. I have to get me and my family to safety. The man, now just six inches away from me, with kind eyes full of compassion, said, You don't have to do this today, Sam. He took the sack off of his back and pulled out an envelope. Inside were the bus tickets that we needed, and to top it all off, the bus would leave in just 45 minutes. He then pulled out another envelope and handed it to me. Inside was $500. 
He then handed me a brown paper sack that had diapers, baby food, snacks, and sodas for me and Rachel, and even a stuffed bear for my son. I was weeping uncontrollably by this point. As I rested my forehead against the man's shoulders, he just embraced me and said, Sometimes things just happen. You're a good man, Sam, and I have a feeling you could grow into a great man. Now, you only have about 30 minutes till that bus leaves, so get your wife and son and get on that bus. I asked, what's your name so I can repay you? He grabbed me by the shoulders and looked me in the eye with those piercing blue eyes and a smile that I could see under his fake beard. Sam, I'm Santa Claus and magic happens around Christmas. As far as repaying me, someday you will be in a position to help someone else. Repay me then by helping them. He embraced me one more time as he released me. I could see Sheila and Rachel holding Jack, looking out the diner window. I went into the diner and rounded up my little family. Sheila boxed up some pie and gave me some coffee in a to-go cup. Then the bus pulled up and Sheila hugged us and we got on the bus. As we boarded the bus, I exhaled deeply, then saw my son holding the bear that this stranger gave him, and I began to weep. Rachel just held me as all the emotions and worry of the last three days came pouring out. Later on in the bus ride, as my family slept next to me, I couldn't get the man's eyes out of my mind. They were filled with love and compassion, no judgment, nothing that made me feel ashamed or uncomfortable. Just compassion. Rachel and Jack and I spent Christmas alone together after all, in my parents' house. Safe, warm, and fed. After my parents got home, they helped me get a new car and a new apartment in Lincoln. On the way back to Nebraska, I stopped by that truck stop and pestered Sheila until she gave me the name of the man in the Santa suit. I found out it was a shop foreman that we were waiting for. He happened to be in the diner at the same time we were, and Sheila filled him in on what was going on. I went to the shop and asked for the man. As he came around the corner, covered in oil and grease, I embraced him and told him just how much his act of service meant to me. I tried to pay him back, but he refused and just said to help someone else out when the time came. Sam quit telling the story now and looked at me. David, that man was your father. I wept when I heard he passed because I felt like the earth was a little worse off for him not being in it. However, David, I have hope. I have hope because you're his son. Your mom mentioned that you told her that you didn't know who your father was. Well, I can tell you who he was to me. He was my relief in my most desperate hour. He was a light when it seemed darkness was all around. Your dad left you a legacy of love and service. Now it's up to you if you will pick that torch up and carry on. I don't know you well, but I have a feeling that you're not going to disappoint. With that, dinner wrapped up and Sam took me home. We had a pleasant conversation on the way home. He got out of the car and hugged me and told me that I would grow into a good man. And with that, he got back into his rental car and began to drive away. As I was walking away, he stopped and rolled down the window. He said, look, I got something for you that I think will help. It's in your room. He rolled his window back up and then drove away. I went inside my house. Everyone was asleep. It was about 1230 in the morning. I walked into my room and on my bed was a garment bag. I hung it up and unzipped the bag. There inside the bag was a Santa Claus suit with a note that read, I paid your mom to get this refurbished and cleaned. This was your father's suit. I figured it was a tool you will need to carry on your father's legacy. I buried my face into the red velvet coat and wept. Wept at the thought that my dad had actually worn this suit. Wept out of a loss for my father. 
and also wept out of gratitude that I know my father a little bit better and that he really did leave something for me. I then felt my mom's hands on my shoulders as she whispered to me, Sam wasn't the only one your father helped in that suit, but he was the only one that came back. She then said, you're too young for this now, but the time will come when you grow in stature, maturity, and compassion. But I know you will keep your dad's legacy alive. So that's the story. Now, to be fully transparent, I want to tell you what really happened in that truck stop that day in 1985 in Denver. I was an 8-year-old boy eating in that truck stop diner with my dad. He really did run a shop at that truck stop. Sheila was a real person. I do remember vividly her whispering something in my dad's ear that caused his expression to change from joy and happiness to one of concern and compassion. I remember that in that moment he got up from the booth and went to the diner telephone and called my mom. I remember my mom got to the diner and my dad slipped out the back. I then remember my mom signaling me to come over and look out the window. Whereas an eight-year-old boy, I saw Santa deliver relief to a man, his wife, and their small child. Never once did it dawn on me that inside that suit was my dad. See, even as a kid I was kind of slow. It wouldn't be until I was 16 years old that I learned that it was my dad in that suit. Don't get me wrong, it's not like I believed in Santa until I was 16. It's just I hadn't made the connection with that experience in the truck stop diner with my dad. At 16, I really did have the come-apart moment I talked about in the story where I punched the mirror while I was trying to shave, and it happened just the way I told it. It was a few weeks after that, however, that it was my mom that gave me that Santa Claus suit and not Sam. The characters in the story of Sam, Rachel, and Jack were based on the three people that I saw my dad help that day. I never really met any of those people. There was no one named Sam that came to my dad's funeral, Nobody named Sam took me out to dinner and told me the story. I found out about the story from my mom and my mom alone. I don't know who those folks were that my dad helped. I don't know what their backstory was. I don't know how they came to be in that situation. All I know is that my dad helped them out in a way that was very special around Christmas. I filled in the details of Sam, Rachel, and Jack so that the story could be told. It was my mom that filled me in that it was my dad who had helped those three people out that day. It was her that told me my dad had done this many times before to many different people. It was her that let me know that I had a legacy to continue. So that suit and legacy my dad gave me, that is 100% real. Once I had a family of my own, I put on that suit a couple of days before Christmas every single year. I make a special delivery to some family that is in need. My wife drives me. My older kids wrap the gifts. I hope I've done a good job in passing this legacy on to them. The most incredible part is is that no matter how much I give, I am the one that always feels the most blessed every time I serve. Every time I see the look of relief on some parent's face on how they were going to provide Christmas that year, or the excitement and wonder on the child's face, I am the one that is so richly blessed. On some occasions, as my wife parks down the street about 100 or 200 feet away from the house so they don't see me coming, I make that short walk to their home and I can feel my dad right beside me every time. And on a few occasions, I found myself speaking with him. 
There's only one thing I can remember my dad saying to me as a kid that I put in the story that I kind of disagree with. He used to say magic happens around Christmas. As I've come to know our God, it's not magic. What we feel around Christmas, that feeling, that's the love of God. And it's not that God loves us every more every December. It's that we're a little more open to feeling his love. So my prayer for you this year is that you begin your own legacy of love and service to God's children. Heaven knows we need it now more than ever. Again, I want to thank you for listening. I also want to thank everybody who came on the podcast this year. My guests really did make the podcast what it is. I want to thank everyone for their listenership. I have been so profoundly blessed to interact with you, the listener, at times. Sometimes I feel guilty because I know I'm getting way more out of doing the podcast than anyone listening. I look forward to next year to continue to bring on great guests and bring you more episodes of the podcast. So finally, from me and my family to yours, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, or whatever it is you celebrate. May you feel God's love more abundantly during this special time of year.